0: Oh, Newcastle, what have you gone and done? We're here to give our thoughts and our best wishes and our hugs to their supporters, again. Also coming up, Neymar wants Neymar of Paris. Meanwhile, England's women go forth, but England's boys go backwards. Is it time to carry Adie Boothroyd to the job centre? There's African nations football, there's copper American football coming at you with all the subtlety and consideration of a history lesson from Geoffrey Boycott. It's another Summer Totally Football Show. Right then, let's meet the guests that we intend to treat like Boris Johnson treats his girlfriend's sofa. A big, totally football show welcome to the saintly Carl Anchor. Hello, are you, Carl. I'm good, I'm good. It's good to be back. Anything going on in your life right now?
1: Oh, uh, just uh, a <laughs> few uh, church going ceremonies
2: and whatnot. Lovely stuff. Jules. Hello. You've just got back from France. Indeed, and I'm going back again for the quarterfinals on uh, Friday. Very nice, which yes. bet. Yes, in Paris. Lovely. Against either Spain or the US. I would rather Spain, and so would the, the whole of France, because it looks like, seeing how the French are playing, they've got no chance against the, the Americans, if it is them.
0: They do look pretty yeah. tidy. Yeah.
2: Um, splendid
0: work on Thursday, by the way. The uh, France 2000 show that you, oh, me, yes. and Michael Cox recorded. Uh, if you haven't heard that, that is on the same Totally feed you're listening to right now. That's the France Euro 2000 team, i.e. not the one led by Stefan Givarch. Um, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't heard the show uh, and is curious to know, what
2: is he doing these days? He sells swing pools. Ah. And some say he's better at selling swimming pools than at scoring goals. Many would. Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I haven't Many seen would. him selling swimming pools, but I saw him struggling to score goals at times. a
0: low bar to cross, I'd imagine. <laughs> um, the the sharper-minded of you listeners will have already ascertained there's no Jimbo today. He's filming World's Strongest Man and Britain's Greatest Model Railways. They're both heading to the telly very, very soon for you. Uh, thank you for all your feedback on recent shows most of it was quite nice we will just brush over the jiffy bag of faeces sent to us uh, that may well have been my <laughs> wife anyway uh, I wanted to read uh, w- one particular message we got from Matt Keem from Southampton though he's in Ibiza when he wrote this he was uh, rather taken by last week's show when I recounted Tony Pulis patting me on the bottom um, when I was a journalist and, and it was all cool Matt writes I was at Southampton West Brom a couple of years ago possibly the most boring game of all time, only illuminated by the Bouffal wonder goal. Anyway, I was sat behind the West Brom dugout that day and it's safe to say I've never seen so many bottoms being slapped in all my life. But here's a twist. Pulis was not doing the slapping. Gary Megson was his assistant manager at the time and it appeared to me that his main job was to administer his hand to the arse of every player that got up to warm up or every player that was about to come on it goes without saying that the guys coming off were also on the receiving end of Megson's tender hand. Not in a Chandler Bing's boss kind of way, just a little tap of encouragement. I may be doing him a disservice, but this did seem to be Megson's singular role, as he did very little else. Pulis spent the entire time in the technical area and would occasionally turn around and say something to Megson, who would then immediately start slapping arses. So there you go. There's a Twitter account called Gentle Sports Touches, which just shares GIFs
1: of when teammates are hugging each other yeah. or enjoying a celebration and no, i no, just enjoy that every now and again it pops
0: up on my feed just two players having a handshake and hugging each other I'm like ah, it's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing we did get one message from a listener who who was genuinely concerned for me and felt that perhaps the tap hadn't been you know that, that yeah. there was something can i just clarify that i welcomed the the hand on my bottom uh, it made me feel as though i belonged in an industry was soft? Where I didn't was also... it a bit... yeah it was reassuring okay you know it gave me strength okay Well, one man who certainly felt like he belonged uh, up in the North East, Rafa Benitez. We were all kind of expecting this, but news coming through that he will be leaving the club in a week's time. His contract was uh, coming up to the end. There seemed no real sign that Newcastle were going to do anything about it in terms of offering him, as far as the reporting suggested, not not the pay packet that Benitez wanted, but the support and, and the freedom. I think it's entirely predictable how this is going to play out. Jules, what are your reactions to it?
2: I think it's a dreadful decision by Newcastle not to have tried harder to keep him. How how can you think that someone else is going to do a better job than him in this context, you know, with with no money being able to spend or clearly if there was money there for him to spend, he would have, you know, they would have kept him and he would have stayed, they would have found some sort of agreement. The thought for Newcastle fans to be without him and whoever else is coming is coming next, but surely no one can come next that is better than Rafael Benitez. Oh, and anyway. we've
0: we've seen with so many big clubs that get relegated into the Championship, it's really difficult to get back first time. Um, Rafael Benitez managed it. Not only that, but with um, certain restrictions, maybe a lack of vision, lack of ambition uh, at the upper levels of the club, he still kept them safe from relegation for two seasons. And I think he he would have happily stayed, wouldn't he, Carl?
1: Yes, I think Rafa's been very open about the fact that he loves Newcastle and uh, Newcastle fans love him and he's very much always struck the world of football as a man who respects the connection between fans and the club and he understands that a club is more than just a stadium where you go to every single Saturday or Sunday, but actually a community space and a, a place of hope for, for, for thousands of people and that's why Benitez always is best when he's in cities that... More or less revolve around a club and can work as a community hub for all these places. So Valencia, Liverpool, and now Newcastle, the higher ups and club officials to so dramatically reject the ideas Rafa Benitez is trying to put forth that a football club can be so much more than a money making exercise. Can be so much more than 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 a branding for for a sports retailer. That it can be so much more than just a collection of players. That it can be a community hub. That it can do be a force for social good for for Mike Ashley and those around to be like, eh, money though, innit? it. Um, it's not just bad for Newcastle, it's bad for football as a whole. It, it is the whole idea of we can do the right thing, but how much money would it cost? And yeah. I think if you're ever in a situation where someone is going, yeah, but that'll cost money, it's, it's disheartening for, surely for everyone. Sell
2: the club. Surely, surely, as a businessman, he knows, okay, if I want to sell the club and I've got a top, top manager in charge, that'd be easier than if I have bloody... Yeah, McIntosh is a manager and I try him to sell the club and I'm like... Steady on. Do
0: you know what I mean?
2: It doesn't make any sense on any level. It's a lot easier to sell Newcastle if
1: they're a top half... Side than if they're in, than if they're a playoff contending side in the championship. And that's no disrespect to the Newcastle squad and, and players at Newcastle. They're, they're, there are some very, very good players there. And we're not saying now Rafa's gone, Newcastle are a lock for relegation or will be broiled into a relegation battle. That might not come to pass.
0: And yet it might. It's always been strange, this idea that Newcastle fans demand success. They haven't had any success in most people's lifespans. Um, so i have never really sure where that's come from all they want is just a club that at least gives the impression that they are striving to success rather than just giving the impression that they're just doing enough not to get relegated I think they want a modicum of respect I think I've read reports that the new Newcastle home kit something like 65 pound
1: making it one of the more expensive home shirts for the for the 1920 season and you're you're a Newcastle fan and there's a new shirt out it's north of 60 quid there's all been all this talk about a potential takeover that Yes, I don't think any Newcastle fan was genuinely believing Kylian Mbappe was going to come over. But the idea that someone would take over that would allow you to buy a central midfielder for more than 20 million
0: would have been quite nice. Well, I'll tell you what, our, our friends at Paddy Power are just throwing up the, um, the the first reaction odds for who might take over. Uh, Gary Monk, 11-2, to 2, is is leading the way, which would be an odd choice. He's never really stuck around anywhere too long, though in many respects that probably makes him perfect for this. Uh, Eddie Howe, I cannot see in a million years, leaving the, uh, the security and happiness he, he has at Bournemouth. And then you've got, like, Gennaro Gattuso, Jose Mourinho, Chris Hewton. There is no way on God's earth that Chris Hewton's going back to working under Mike Ashley. Jules, where do they go from here?
2: Only one man, uh, you know, another former Chelsea, Real Madrid and Inter Milan manager. Because clearly they go, for, <laughs> they go for that style, they go for that kind of guys. So after Rafael, could only be Jose. Can you just imagine? Mourinho in Newcastle that would be amazing
0: <laughs> no I cannot
1: I <laughs> cannot imagine I mean the... St James's Park is a fantastic football stadium Newcastle is a fantastic football city the connection between Newcastle fans and that football club is remarkable and remarkable in that sense that would would feed into the ego of someone like Jose Mourinho if you can find a way to get success there.
0: Well, I tell you what, I have just scrolled down the list and uh, just noticed at uh, the price you'd probably appreciate lurking there is Harry Redknapp at 40 to 1. He has been heavily linked with the job in the past. Oh, uh, he's also great. in sort of, you know... Another celeb- London man. Celebrity... Arsene, <laughs> Arsene Wenger. Ar- Arsene Wenger's on there at a similar price. However... You know, Mike Ashley, Harry Redknapp, they they have spoken about this before and he did hire Joe Kinnear. Um, oh, God, sorry, Newcastle fans. Uh, I'd imagine you're in, you're in quite a bad way and need a hug right now. However, we're going to move on. On Spotify,
3: smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media.
0: So, Neymar's told PSG he's not going to play for them again. He regrets ever signing for them and he wants to go back to Barcelona, who he left in 2017 for a world record 222 million euros. Uh, Michel Platini spent much of last week being questioned by police from the financial crime division as they investigate alleged corruption over the World Cup going to Qatar in 2022. What do these two stories have to do with each other? They're both about French football's links with Qatari billions let's start with Neymar Jules Uh, what's been the reaction in in Paris 51 goals in 58 games but a feeling that hasn't really been a success
2: yeah the the numbers when he was fit and when he played were great there was some some great moments from him Um, the problem was he got two injuries pretty much at the same times in in the two seasons where he was there in February so missed some crucial Champions League matches and like you said the feeling that all the money they paid in transfer fee as you said the two, 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 and also in wages because he earns 32 million euros net per year you know the, the the return on investment hasn't been what they were hoping it would be they really believed and hoped that he would take them to the next level in the Champions League especially and that hasn't happened What's, what I find fascinating and I keep repeating to people and reminding people is Neymar went to get PSG he called them to leave when he wants to leave barcelona it's not it was never their plan to sign neymar in the summer 2017 they had other plans and other players they wanted to sign and both him and mbappe to you know in another context both went to paris and found paris not the other around so for him not to say i regret leaving barcelona he implemented the whole move it was not nothing to do with psg at the start and then of course when he called them and said You know, can you afford me? I want to come to you. Of course, they they, they made it happen. But there's the feeling that, you know, he came and didn't really make it worth it. And now they're very much open to him going anywhere he wants. If he wants to go back to Barcelona, go go to United, go to Real Madrid, go to anywhere. Because I think they really want to build their team now again around Kylian Mbappe.
0: Carl, he says he wants to go to Barcelona, but do you think Barcelona want him? I mean, they're they're supposed to be going for Griezmann, uh, supposed to be committed to signing Griezmann, and it's not like Neymar seems like a low-maintenance option. No, I think the
1: biggest swing factor in in Neymar returning to Barcelona is Lionel Messi. If Messi okays it, and by all accounts, Messi is... Likely to, because they're they're quite good friends. Uh, Neymar shares a WhatsApp group chat with Messi and Suarez and whatnot, and they they still converse quite amicably with each other. So if if Messi is able to give it the green light, then Barcelona will at least make some sort of attempt to get Neymar in. I don't believe Barcelona can afford him under any circumstances, which I think makes that deal very unlikely. I think Neymar will most likely be playing football for PSG next season, um, doing what we now call a Suarez year or a Hazard year or the sort of <laughs> alright I'll give you one more year and then then you can give me my dream uh, move but you well, don't want him for another year So,
0: but there is one way this deal could happen isn't there that um, perhaps Coutinho or, or Dembele could be used as, as sort of double make weight to make it happen is there anything in that?
2: yeah maybe I don't really believe in those swap and money deals and not between big clubs you know uh, I, I think it's, they're so complicated there's so many different parts involved, you know, if Coutinho and then Dembele want really to move and and sort out their contract and then Neymar, it's a very complicated deal then uh, compared to just like, okay, we want 200 million bonuses included for Neymar. Can you afford it? Yes, we can. And that, you know, that would be much easier. I don't think
1: Barcelona can afford it. I think they, they are, they're an old squad in need of a massive rebuild and you don't do that massive rebuild by bringing in a 28, 27 turning 28 year old Neymar because, yeah, Griezmann's coming. Barcelona can barely afford Griezmann as it is. Uh, is my understanding they're already very well stocked in that area. Malcolm is probably sat on that on his thumbs going, "Hang on, what's going on here? You've you've nicked me from the airport when I was about to go to Roma, only to replace me with all these people." Um, I think Neymar's going to stay at PSG basically because no one, the clubs that can afford him are are Real Madrid, who's already in the mid, ma- middle of this massive rebuild, and they've just bought En Hazard, and and Barca, who if Messi puts his foot down and says go out and get him and I'm willing to take a pay cut or I'm willing to get Suarez or whatnot, to get the pay cut possibly but you'd, you'd hope that Barcelona have enough business sense to understand that like trading Dembele and Coutinho for Neymar is not the great deal they think it is uh, Coutinho, Coutinho I think to a lesser degree I think Coutinho unfortunately has been a bit of a boss for Barcelona but don't, absolutely don't trade Osmond Dembele he's low-key in waiting Jules how does this end?
2: <sighs> it's... Uh... I don't know, I still believe that because they both want the same thing, which is Neymar to go and himself want to go as well, that it will happen, that somehow they make it happen. It's quite a complicated one. It would look weird and feel weird for Neymar to go back to Paris um, now after everything that happened um, in the last few days and few weeks. But Carl is right in the sense that you know, if no one puts the money on the table, if there's no offer, there's no deal. There won't be any deal. But I really believe that when, you know, the club and the player both want to part ways, when Pini Zahavi is involved in the deal as well to make it happen, something, you know, something something can happen. I mean, Neymar was texting his, um, his former Barca friends saying like, don't worry, I'm coming back. Don't worry, it will happen. Don't worry. So does he know already something's happening? I find it really weird that what's happening with Griezmann as well. I know that they were waiting for the 1st of July to announce the deal because that's where the release clause goes down from 200 million to 120 million uh, euros. But I think Griezmann and his camp are quite panicking a bit right now about what's gonna happen with him and with, with Barcelona. So it will make the next two weeks at least until July the 1st of the next 10 days, or even less than that, five days, very very interesting I think
0: right also leaving PSG this summer definitely leaving PSG this summer uh, one Danny Alves uh, player with the most honors in the game 39 to be exact including nine leagues three Champions League three Club World Cups two UEFA Cups and a copper America Carl you're a big fan of his Manchester United could probably do with a fullback Can you see two and two adding together for this
1: yeah and listen to the sound of my voice. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, you,
0: you, you mean to tell this? me? You mean to tell me
1: there is an aging legend with questionable knees, on kamikaze wages, who could be a very good PR pull? I mean, that's perfect for Manchester. It's United. perfect for Edward for and Manchester United. And and you mean what, you could block opportunities for a promising young talent? You're also trying to sign? I mean, every box is tick. It's Bastian Schweinsteiger part two. <laughs>
0: All right, Let's drag it all the way back to Platini um, and I should say though we do have our own in-house lawyer now, yeah. let's be really really careful. <laughs> so for younger listeners, Carl and I were talking about this um, bit before the show, uh, Michel Platini, I was just a, not quite the right age for him as a player and I always end up thinking of him more as a manager, he was World Soccer's Manager of the Year in 1992 for his work with France. Carl, um, you, you were saying you only discovered him quite late as a as a player?
1: Yes, uh, from Portrait of an Icon, um, Daniel Story's book. He has a wonderful essay on, on Platini and basically how he very much might have had the greatest career year footballers has ever had in his Ballon d'Or winning year from, I want to say 1983.
2: 84.
1: 84, sorry, the one <sighs> with, the, with the Euros. Yeah. Um, so there's that. F- wonderful footballer. Undisputed. He's the reason why the number 10 shirt Juventus is such a big deal. He is one, he's the greatest French footballer and then Zidane came along. There's that. And as you said, he's a fantastic football manager.
0: Was he not? Yes. Well, um, well briefly. He yeah. had like that two and a half year unbeaten
2: run. Yeah. The but qualifiers it, to the 92 euros were perfect. And then they didn't win a single game in the competition. And then, <laughs> yeah. Very, the problem he very had as a manager is that every time they were doing something, he didn't like a training, he said, give me the ball. And then he showed them and humiliated them. So really? there's He's a point your very own Glenn Hoddle. Yeah, and oh. there's a point, or oh Thierry Henry in Monaco recently. Uh, there's a point where that really, really annoyed a lot of the players. So he had to go. But
0: So we can agree, great player, yeah. uh, had a brief spell as a good manager. Uh, and then a colourful administrator yeah. in, in so many ways. Banned from football since 2015 due to uh, some kind of naughtiness, uh, we would imagine. Jules, what's the reaction been in France to all this?
2: interesting in the sense that Michel Platini still has a lot of very very good friends in French media uh, in very powerful media like L'Equipe and France Football and, and France Info the, um, the, 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 BBC, the French equivalent of the BBC radio in this country so the reaction was never what it maybe would have been in other circumstances but the fact was that he still says he did nothing wrong and that um, he was cleared by the Swiss um, justice system uh, in back in April 2018 for the money that he received from Seb Blatter, which originally got him banned from football uh, for eight years, reduced to four. And that he was detained by French police uh, last week and you know put in custody in a cell and then questioned for 15 hours uh, for doing nothing wrong. Really, he said he attended a, a breakfast meeting with. Uh, Mohammed bin Haman, who at the time was the Asian Confederation uh, president, and since has been done for uh, bribery and lobbying, and who was a lobbyist for Qatar to get the 2022 World Cup. Then the same day in November 2010, he also had lunch at the Elysee Palace with Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, his general secretary at the time, his sports advisor at the time, who both were also questioned uh, last week. And more importantly, with the Qatar prime minister, the son of the emir at the time, who is now emir of Qatar, and still uh, his friend uh, Ben Haman as well. And that's the, the lunch where the French police believe that that's where Michel Platini agreed um, against, you know, with some money or not money, we don't know, but agreed to change his vote, which originally was going to be for the United States, and instead vote for Qatar, uh, with the support of Nicolas Sarkozy, who at that time was very much involved with Qatar, who were buying pretty much the whole of Paris and also PSG, not long uh, later. So that's the link between Sarkozy and Platini, Platini and Qatar, Sarkozy and Qatar as well, where obviously money could have circulated as well that are very interesting to the French police.
0: Is there any chance that the World Cup won't go ahead in Qatar? No,
2: it's too late now, it's too late. And even if they prove that Platini voted for Qatar because he received the sum of money or others did, That's just not going to change anything. I mean, what's interesting as well is that, and that was, I think, believe for the first time, Platini was questioned by the French police about that. It's about Euro 2016, which obviously France won and organized. And the day of the vote, it was between France and Turkey. France won eight votes to seven. And Nicolas Sarkozy, who at the time uh, was the French president, traveled to Switzerland uh, when Michel Platini was obviously UEFA president at the time, and was introduced individually and personally by Michel Platini himself to all the UEFA ex-co-members, so executive committee members, who then were going to choose uh, which country between Turkey and France would get the, the 2016 Euros. And Platini afterwards, very openly and weirdly, I think, said to the media, had Sarkozy not been here today, France would have never won this vote. So I don't know what happened between Sarkozy and all those executive committee members of UEFA that day, that morning, but it turned out, according to Platini, that had Sarkozy not been there, France wouldn't have had the 2016 Euros, but Turkey would have had it instead.
0: All right, we'll keep a close eye on that saga as it unfolds. Um, we should talk about the Women's World Cup, shouldn't we? Because of this. They
4: totally lost their composure here now. Shambolic. Like it. It's almost as if they don't want to carry on.
0: Disgusting. Shameful. A disgrace to the sport.
2: Jules, those polka dots on the French kit are just awful. Do you think? Just awful. We were talking about it with my wife yesterday. I think the worst are the socks. Those dots on the socks don't make sense. The shirt, I don't mind it too much. The socks, yeah.
0: I completely disagree with both of you. I think it's a delight. I want both.
2: The socks.
1: The socks socks. and the shirt. No, the shirt
0: I like. You get a load of men together to talk about football and invariably it just becomes (laughs) about (laughs) clothes. Um, you've uh, you've been with the French camp um, and you're heading back out there again. Um, what have you seen?
2: I've seen a team that is not yet playing as best and with a, still a lot of room for improvement. I mean, I think they've reached the quarterfinals so far by being very strong mentally and very good on set pieces. And that's pretty much about it. I, th- I still think they've got players to play much better than that and do much better than that. I still question a lot. Uh, the decisions made by Corinne Diac, the, uh, the head coach, I think she gets a lot of things wrong tactically in terms of personnel, in terms of team selection, even of of management during matches. But all, they're in the quarterfinals.
0: All this sounds really similar to last summer. Yeah. When France were relatively unconvincing right up until the final stages. Do you think they're going to do that again? Just hit top gear at the right time?
2: The only difference was that the Argentina game uh, with the men last summer in the last 16 made the difference. And from them on, it was a completely different team. Their the group stage was poor. The, the women's group stage was average, let's say, even if they won the three games. But yesterday, when we expected them to come out and play well and get a lot of confidence and, you know, and, and go from strength to strength, they went back to being very average and very timid and very disappointing in many ways. And, and I think this is not the kind of performances we wanted to kick on from there especially if they face the US on Friday night in Paris in the quarterfinals because right now if they play against like they did yesterday they, they're they going to get thrashed
0: Alright uh, you've written a very long piece for ESPN FC so head over there if you want to find out more uh, there was another game on Sunday you probably haven't heard about it uh, England 3 Cameroon 0 and scenes there Carl which shocked the game brought the tournament into disrepute Um, Or or are people over-egging this a little bit? I think, yeah, there was was a lot of hand-wringing.
1: I think there's been a lot of uh, unsavory comments from those affiliated with the England camp. I think Phil Neville's comments that that wasn't football and the young girls were watching and it was disgraceful what Cameron did, were they left a particularly foul taste in my mouth. I'm not a particular fan of Phil Neville being the Lionesses' manager nor am I a fan of what he said there. I think what has happened and what that game was is the culmination of incredibly bad panning from FIFA. So, we're ahead of the Men's World Cup last year. VAR was implemented in a number of test events, most notably the Confederations Cup. There was an argument, why are you using the World Cup to test VAR? And my counter-response was, if you are going to use a new technology, you may as well use it at a tournament where you have all the best referees in the world. Uh, and in a situation where the eyes of the world are upon you, so you have to use it properly and rigorously. That is why VAR at the Men's World Cup was, to an extent, I th- think it was a success. I think yeah. it was used judiciously. Um, yes, it brought lots of penalties and whatnot. I think it was, the things it was used for were good. Um, there have been no such test events ahead of this Women's World Cup. Um, and what VAR has done, and is what VAR has consistently done since it's been used in football, is basically highlight how bad the rulebook is football across the board um, so one of the major changes we've seen between the men's world cup I, i'm going to try and stop comparing it to the men's world cup last year but um this issue of penalty retakes which is uh, uh the proper enforcement of a rule that we all sort of ignored because we realised it's a ridiculous rule um and how it's being used in regards to offsides has brought to the spotlight one basically why we ignored the rule about penalty retakes and goalkeepers encroaching and, and two about how bad the offside rule is nowadays and how it's gone through so many revisions, going back and forth, giving advantages to the attacker, then back to the defender and whatnot. And also he's revealed the low standard of refereeing in the women's game up until this point. There's been quite a few fouls in the women's game. Uh, There was one in particular in the Cameroon game where an elbow was thrown and only a yellow card was given, which had a lot of onlookers going, wait, what? Why is this not being refereed properly? And I think VAR has amplified the confusion and the... Lack of proper finesse from the officials at this World Cup. And it's caused a bit of a mess. Cameroon feel hard done by in that game because of a back pass, which was a back pass, of a goal that was onside but was viewed to be offside and then was viewed to be onside correctly using VAR. And that's where they first began to go, no, this is ridiculous, you can't flip-flop. You can. The referee should never have let it get to that point. The referee should not have let... Cameroon get to the point where they look as if they're getting ready to to storm off the pitch in protest, and then it it just became more of a fast off the half time. I think it's the idea that Cameroon somehow acted like spoiled brats or as uh, emotional emotionally heightened. I use I saw someone use the term animals. It left a particularly bad visual where you have the superior winning England side going. Oh, good the unwashed Cameroonian side do not understand the rules of football which I think Phil Neville's comments did not help at all uh, and I think Phil Neville should apologise and should have been a lot more intelligent rather than going on that farcical diatribe
2: Your team has just won 3 nil. just move on what, I don't understand why he was so aggressive towards what the Cameroon players did and you might not agree with them and you know they were clearly very frustrated and there was a lot of emotion there and, and also show their passion to be in there you know they qualified at the last minute it was almost a miracle that they went through you know you, you could also understand but why slagging them off like that on television and, and it looked like if you didn't know their score that his team had lost that his team had lost and that the antics of the Cameroon players disturbed his team That made them lose. Instead, they won 3-0 in the quarterfinals. They look good. They look very strong. Everyone is healthy. We
1: dispute that. They did not look strong. I think England, there was a gap after the second goal where Cameroon had a goal rightfully chalked off for offside where England looked were shaken, shaken, absolutely rattled.
0: Well, look, anyone who saw Phil Neville play for Manchester United in the 90s will know how dedicated that team were to the Corinthian ideals. So I'm <laughs> sure they can completely understand. Um, earlier, Carl said that the offside rule wasn't very good. I just want to clarify he meant the law, not our um, women's football podcast, which is going out every night on Spotify. It's only available on Spotify, but it is completely free. You don't need a premium subscription. You won't hear any ads. You don't even need to use up data by streaming. Just download the episode onto your phone. What's not to like?
5: Hello, it's Kate Borsay from the Offside Rule and the Women's World Cup is heating up. No, seriously, it's like 30 degrees in France. So get the sun cream, sunglasses and sun hat out to make it feel like you're there. (laughs) It's also heating up because it's the lockout stages and England are there too. In fact, they're in the quarterfinals and face Norway next. To keep up with the Lionesses and all the other sides going for glory in France, then head over to Spotify where we're doing daily podcasts. Search for The Offside Rule and give us a listen.
0: Anyway, speaking of tournaments hotting up, it's almost the end of the group stage in the Copa America. Jack Lang is covering all the action in Brazil for us and The Athletic, and producer Ben caught up with him a little after the final whistle of Argentina versus Qatar.
3: Jack, Argentina have made it through to the quarterfinals after beating Qatar 2-0 on Sunday evening, but uh, one of the main stories from this year's Copa is how utterly awful Argentina have been. Um... How is it that a squad that contains Messi, Aguero, Dybala, Angel Di Maria and everyone else can contrive to create such horrible football on the field?
5: Yes, this certainly was a better performance from Argentina, but the problem is that it's a bit of a tallest dwarf competition and relative to to what we've seen from some of the other teams, it still wasn't overly convincing, I would say. Uh, Sergio Aguero did make the results safe, but they were playing against a Qatar side who looked uh, tired, I would say, who perhaps kind of used up all of their their cards in this competition in the first couple of games. Uh, they would looked very impressive against Paraguay for example, but using a, a new back three here they weren't anywhere near that level. Uh, so there's a big pinch of salt to be taken with that. And it's not really clear whether Scaloni has a, a coherent plan going forward. I suppose that's excusable because he's still on a a temporary contract, so he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. That's not a uh, not exactly a recipe for long term planning, is it? And yeah, he's kind of chopped and changed each match so far. I'm sure he'll he'll maintain this formula when they get to the the quarterfinals, but there they face venezuela who who memorably put three past them in a friendly earlier this year really troubled them with their direct quick attacks with uh, Solomon Rondon especially. And that's definitely not a, uh, a given that they'll get through that. If they do, it's likely to be Brazil awaiting in the semifinals, which is the match all neutrals want to see. But uh, if I was an Argentina defender, that's probably the, the worst case scenario.
3: So that's Argentina. Another of the stories from uh, the Copa, of course, has been Chile, um, who have been surprisingly excellent, despite being very old and despite having Alexis Sanchez, who I see has been breaking a few records for the national team. How far can this Chile side go?
5: Yeah, Chile are a funny one. If you'd have asked me to pick a team before the tournament that that I saw as as candidates for being the flops this summer, I probably would have chosen them. It's not because they haven't got the talent. I mean, it's most of the same players who recorded back-to-back Copper titles in 2015 and 2016. Uh, we know who most of them are, but the, the fact is that they're they're over the hill really. A lot of them they're players whose club form has really dipped. Alexis Sanchez being the most obvious example, but who also didn't make it to the World Cup. And there's there was just the the feeling, I suppose, that the the bloodline that had gone through Bielsa and Sampoli was was starting to. To run out, that maybe a little bit of the glitz was wearing off. This summer is a chance for them to to bow out on a on a high note, on a dignified note, and you know rage against the dying of the light. And they've done that so far in their their two wins, uh, qualifying for the quarterfinals with a game to spare. But I just think they are going to be found out when they they play better opposition. They they've got Uruguay tonight. I think that's going to be uh, a tricky test for them. I'm going to the Malacanã for that one. And in the knockout stages, I just think they're going to run out of steam. Uh, there's not really a young generation coming through. This is the problem for, for Chile. In in Ronaldo Rueda, they've got a really thoughtful coach, very much respected in South America. But apart from Eric Pulgar, who's who's looked pretty good in midfield, there, there aren't younger guys yet, at least, to replace those that are going to retire in the next two or three years. So this, this could be Chile's last real send off, I suppose, as a a major force in this competition.
0: Copper America always had very happy memories of the Copper America the 2011 tournament started shortly after my daughter was born oh, see? Good. so I was able to get all the brownie points by doing what they called the, the starlight feeds <laughs> yes know? yes, of course um, it was well, night w- yeah. watching the football but then I was already staying up filing reports for the Singaporean newspaper that employed me at the time so it, it was lovely though I was so manically sleep deprived that I asked Twitter to vote whether or not I should drink my wife's express breast milk in my coffee because <laughs> we'd run out of actual milk. <laughs> um, but these were very different times. Yes, uh, sure. Twitter, was, like that Twitter is. was a happy place. <laughs> Hey, speaking of nostalgia, how many of you listening still have your Panini albums from the 80s and early 90s hidden away in a box in your parents' attic or under the mattress? Panini is the original and best name in sticker collecting and they're now a partner with the Premier League. That means you can look forward to both the Premier League official sticker collection and Adrenaline XL Premier League trading cards very, very soon. They're great. They're a bit like Top Trumps. I very, very much like them. Right now you can get your hands on the brand-new Premier League Panini tabloid sticker collection, celebrating the highs and lows of the 2018-19 season. Uh, It being the 21st century, this Panini album comes with QR codes on the album pages to give you access to exclusive video clips of the season's most dramatic and sensational moments, like that time Riyad Mahrez took a penalty at Anfield. I think it's still heading to earth as we speak. And when Neil Warnock gave the officials in the game between Cardiff and Chelsea, proper stink eye. There are five stickers in every pack, so how about kicking off your collection with a starter kit? You get an album and 20 stickers for just £3.99. Find out more at panini.co.uk, that's P-A-N-I-N-I.co.uk, and get tweeting about them on Twitter. You can find them at Official Panini and on Insta at Panini UK Official. And if you use the hashtag got GotGotNeed That'll help as well. I've got some stickers here.
2: I've got Danny Rose. Who've I've got, got badges. Badges are worth a lot. Yeah, badges. Leicester are, are and Liverpool. Loads.
0: Nice, nice.
2: I've got, uh, oh, I've got Mesut Ozil. Get rid of that. <laughs> I've got half of Trent Alexander-Arnold, maybe? Could be. With with my friend, Jordan Henderson. <laughs> uh, fine player. Fine always player. said it. Always said it. Always said it.
0: Hey, it's time to say hello to the Totally Football Show's Nick Miller for a brand new section we're tentatively calling Nick's Nibs or Nick's News in Briefs, which is not like topless darts and I must assure you that at this stage the Nick is very much fully clothed, as are all our (laughs) panellists.
1: Nah, I got my shoes off.
0: (laughs) Nick, we hire a Nottingham Forest fan and immediately there's Nottingham Forest news. Roy Keane, he's out. What happened? Uh, well, he
4: wants to be a manager again, which um, oh good, yeah, uh, he hasn't he hasn't actually done that for a while, and there's probably good reason for that. Um, it, it, from a Forest perspective, no one will really care, I don't think, apart from maybe Martin O'Neill. He, I don't think he added much to the coaching. He just kind of stalked around and told people they were terrible. I think, which is kind of pretty much what Roy Keane does these days. Um, this might kind of. Spark the more romantic Manchester United fans on the internet (laughs) into thinking that um, going back there might be a good idea because he is because he you know he he says it like it is and you know they need someone
0: to give Jesse Lingard and so on a big kick up the bum. That's what United
1: need more nostalgia. Yeah,
0: more nostalgia and absolutely not having any fun on your holidays ever.
4: Um, I mean, if you watch those videos of Jesse Lingard, they didn't even make the bed. In the hotel room, It's
0: <laughs> how, disgusting. How it's dare he look like a young man who's enjoying his life? Yeah. I'm sick of it. Um, Frank Lampard, I'm getting a bit sick of that now. Is it going to happen yet?
4: Uh, if it's going to happen, it will happen um, in the next few days, I think. Have there Fra- been
0: any rumours for you know the other side of this equation, Derby County, and who they might get to replace him if he does go?
4: Uh, well, one rumour which I. Do confess what started by my dad was that Roy Keane was going, oh, yeah, uh, was going. To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to Derby. But that that is just because my dad's a vindictive man and he wants Derby in pain. Right. Um, no, I you know I haven't and the, the 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 reports are that they are very much waiting for Chelsea to kind of to stump up this. Derby's pre-season start, training starts on July the first and they want someone they want it all resolved well before then, so if Lampod does go, then they have got time to get a replacement in. Who that replacement will be I have no idea.
0: Uh, let's have a look at player transfers. Uh, Christian Eriksen to Manchester United. Carl, is that a thing? Possibly. There was, I
1: think there was rumour and conjecture that he'd he more or less packed up his house before the final in Madrid in the Champions League. So Eriksen is very much set on leaving. I am a big Christian Eriksen fan. I think him making the jump was the difference during Tottenham Hotspur's Wembley years. And I think... I've mentioned previously on this podcast that Barcelona should have bought him instead of Coutinho and they would have been better off that way. This version of Christian Eriksen now has a lot of miles on the clock. It's not he's not 27. He's 27 with the 30-year-old's mileage uh, and he's been playing incredibly high-octane, pressing football on the Pochettino so you're system. you're
0: saying he's one of the biggest names in European football? He's passed his best and he'll be very expensive. Oh, I mean, again, no. it just seems perfect. Oh. Jules, Portuguese wonder kid, Felix, Joe, or... Uh, Joao Felix. Thanks, Jack. He's left Benfica for Atletico Madrid.
2: Yeah. High hopes? Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, he he costs a lot of, me, a lot of money for a 19-year-old, 120 uh, around 120 million euros. For someone who just had one season, not even the whole season, uh, you know, in the at the top level. But he was amazing in the Europa League. He was amazing in the league for Benfica. He's so, so good. He's versatile and so elegant to watch as well. And I think, although he's a different profile than Griezmann, he's a very good replacement in many ways, if they can find the right partner up front for him as well. There was a lot of English clubs as well, like United and City, who were keen on him too. I'm really hoping that if Atletico Madrid and Diego Simeone sign Joao Felix, he's to start an evolution in the way they're going to play because you cannot play the style of football you've been playing for the last seven or eight years with Joao Felix. That's just not going to work. If you play with him and if you add flair players around him as well, is to play a more expensive style of football. And I'm really hoping that's the idea behind that, that transfer. All
0: right, one word answer. Do PSG still want De Gea? No. Alright, uh, the transfer that caught my eye though and this is just happy memories of the Football League show back in the day, Matt Clark from Portsmouth to Brighton £5 million, really really impressive young defender and Brighton have got a good record for picking these Nick, what do you reckon?
4: I know it's entirely pointless to complain, but or not complain but be surprised by transfer fees but I still can't quite get my head around someone paying £5 million for a third division Thunder Defender I mean he'll be, he'll be a kind of, he's 22 I think he'll be a Back up to uh, Lewis Dunk and uh, Shane Duffy, who I think Brighton were pretty lucky that they two those two stayed fit for most of the last season. They haven't got anything beyond that, but yeah, it is quite sort of nice and nostalgic isn't it yeah someone that, that you to you, you, the thought that someone can just go from the third division into the into the Premier League,
0: you know what i'm going to say it with the same confidence that I said Forrest uh, shouldn't have accepted as low a bid as thirteen million for Oliver Burke and that he was worth probably twice that much. That, that panned out all right. <laughs> um, in that same voice of confidence, I'm going to say Matt Clark will attract a transfer fee of three times that within two years. I really like him. It's a huge talk. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Thanks for dropping by. Right, let's turn our attention to the England under 21s sat currently on the naughty step. Yes. Carl, uh, you saw England take on Romania. Um, England trailing 2 1 in the 85th minute, and then Tammy Abrahams makes it 2 all. Yeah, it's a good finish. Yeah, though oh, it wasn't the finish. Oh, boy.
4: Oh, it's got him. Can you believe what's happening here in
1: Um, Have a real problem because Gareth Southgate is overachieved. This talk of England DNA has caused repercussions across all their age groups where they've all gone, oh, great, Gareth Southgate is taking England men to the semi final World Cup because he. Well, we don't know why. Let's hire people and empower people who remind us of Gareth Southgate, which is why you now got Phil Neville unironically wearing a waistcoat in charge of the lionesses and why A.D. Boothroyd sort of just was in charge of the 21s for ages and no one went, wait, that guy? Really?
2: (laughs) You're not a fan. Oh, no, he's a clown. (laughs) He's there because Dan Ashworth, who was director of the FA, is his best friend. That's the only reason why he's... In that uh, job.
0: I, da- David Norris on Twitter says AD Bufroyd is such a dinosaur, he should be called BC Bufroyd. I mean that that is good. That I mean, is very, very one
1: good. Could bring up Boothroyd's interview with The Guardian after the exit against Romania. So Romania won the game four two because England were playing kamikaze football trying to chase a victory that they actually, they very much needed. But if you he looks a man
4: completely
1: out of his depth. These uh, these quotes, uh, I didn't sleep. I always think to myself, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Any half-decent coach asks themselves those questions when they're picking their bones out or something like that. You're not a PE teacher from a sixth-form football team. Do I Give me more rigorous analysis of why your team was chasing and playing with such a high line when you're 2-2 in, in the diamonds of a tournament game. A lot of the criticism was very much on why he chose not to start Phil Foden and Ryan Sessignon. And his rebuttal was that both of them were fatigued, and dead on their feet, as he said, after their 2-1 defeat to France. Come on. I, I, I want to just say, come on. He said His argument was we were very much planning to be in this tournament for, for three to five games rather than just for, for two. Well, they got and the you, lower end of that. They got the us. lower end, but also a ridiculous amount of arrogance from a man who does not deserve to be that arrogant. If you've been handed the golden ticket to be in charge of this on the 21 squad, which he has and which he knows he has, he needs to be more tactically astute than this. Right. He needs to be better and uh, to say that they'll have to carry him out to follow the 21 exit I... it's, a, it's,
2: a, it's a very very talented squad and he also shows for, for all the discussions we've had about how much does a manager make in the success of a team etc etc that is the living proof that even if you've got top top players which he has if, you, if you're if you not good you get found out and he got found out badly against France they were maybe a bit unlucky but against Romania the defeat is on him 100%. Talking France, how are they doing? Yeah, so they they need a point tonight against uh, Romania to make sure that they get to the semi-final which will al- also qualify them um for for the for the the Olympics next next year in Tokyo. They were they were a bit lucky they, they rode that like I thought against England in the first game. They were okay in the second game against Croatia. Uh, they've got much more and the problem we have is that our head coach is the French Shady Boothroyd. And I think eventually, when you go down to the semi-final, and whether you play Spain or Italy or whoever, that would be a problem because Sylvain Ripoll, the French head coach, is not very good.
0: All right. Uh, Mikey Kluwer on Twitter asks, uh, which players have caught your eye in the Euro
2: Under-21s? Oh, Danny Ceballos was exceptional. Tell me about him. He was just... He... I mean... I've, I've struggled to understand why Real Madrid haven't played him more and why Zidane doesn't seem that keen on him because he bossed that game like you've rarely seen at that level. And and I think he's far too good for the N21 and, and him and Fabian Ruiz were so good that you do wonder if they get when they get to the Olympics if Spain should have them in their Euro squads or in the Olympic squads because they, they will be eligible for both. But those kind of players at that level, it's just like you playing with some 12 year old, well, not you, car, but your Carl. <laughs> yeah, you let's know. definitely <laughs> cut that. <out. laughs> and yeah, he has been, you know, you could have pointed out before that Keza would be very good and, you know, all those who have a lot of experience, uh, you know, at the top, top level. But I think Sebios has been fantastic.
0: Carl, anyone caught your eye? Luca Waldschmidt, the.
1: Striker FC Freiburg striker who is uh, leading the life in Germany got f- three goals against Serbia on the twenty ones and then one more against Poland. He reminds me a bit of Miroslav Klose in terms of I'm a proper number nine. Do not expect me to stand outside the penalty area. Nice. I'm just here to score goals. Traditional two bubble gum.
0: Excellent. I'll keep an eye out for him. Um, right. When we when we said we were doing shows all the way through the summer, there was someone who asked why and whether or not we'd have enough to talk about. We were struggling to squeeze it in. The Africa Cup of Nations kicked off in Cairo on Friday night. Uh, the hosts Egypt beating Zimbabwe 1-0. One of the favourites, Nigeria, they also got off to a winning start beating Burundi 1-0, while Madagascar made their first ever appearance at the finals. And Uganda won their first match at the tournament for 41 years. Big Gun Senegal, Algeria and Morocco also all chalked up three points in their opening fixtures. Find out more. Here's our friend Basil MacDaddy, daddy of the Mac, and an African football expert for the BBC and elsewhere. I spoke to him a short while ago. I started by asking him to pick out some of the players who could take the tournament by storm.
6: If we're to look at uh, North Africa to begin with, a couple of strikers that I think could make a move to Europe. Um, uh, Baghdad Buneja, who scored, uh, the penalty yesterday to, uh, get Algeria off to a good start against Kenya. Uh, he's been averaging around a goal, a game in Qatar. And I think if he has a good tournament, he will probably move to a team in Europe. Uh, also another North African striker, uh, Yusuf Nasseri, who scored against Spain at last year's world cup. Uh, he had a decent season at Leganes and, uh, it's rumored Arsenal will be looking, At him, and so he'll be uh, under pressure to have a good tournament and uh, help the Atlas Lions go far. And then, if we're looking uh, further south in the continent, two names that are also rumored to be moving to the Premier League uh, Nicolas Pepe uh, of uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Ismail Assar, who had a really good game. uh, All of Senegal did really in their first win of the tournament against Tanzania. So, those are four names I would um, look for, and I think if they have good tournaments, we'll be seeing them in the Premier League very soon.
0: Basil, it wouldn't be an Africa Cup of Nations without some off-field issues, especially because of all the political unrest in Egypt at the moment and the recent arrest of the head of CAF.
6: Yeah, so a lot of the off-the-field off issues. Um, even before this tournament started, um, Ahmed Ahmed was arrested in France. Lots of accusations from corruption to sexual assault being levied against him and not a good look for African football. He was seen to be the the reformer candidate, the, the guy that would finally get African football back uh, on track on the administrative side. Um, As far as the tournament's organization, this tournament's being held in Egypt. Uh, Egypt is now ruled by the the military, Um, and they want to put on a good show and sort of um, show not only Egyptians but the entire world that uh, they can run Egypt properly. They've done a couple of things that were questionable. They've instituted a fan ID system. Um, tickets are prohibitively expensive for the average Egyptian person. That's why we've seen a lot of empty stadiums. And I think uh, that's by design. Um, Stadiums are monitored by drones because uh, if we go back to the initial revolution in 2011, ultras actually played a big part in uh, bringing down the Mubarak regime. So this military regime is very wary of that. And they don't want uh those types of people coming in large numbers to or coming at all actually to the stadium but you know all their best laid plans um didn't exactly unfold as they as they saw them before the tournament uh egypt's only democratically elected president in their history mohammed morsi died while he was in custody so um they went on a full court press in the media and with policing to try and make sure there would be no unrest before the tournament and then in the opening game actually in the 22nd minute uh, Egyptian fans started chanting um, Mohammed Abu Treyka's name. He's a legend in Egypt, won three African Cup of Nations with the national team at the end of the last decade, and he's in exile right now. He he can't return to Egypt because he's been accused of uh, supporting terrorism, and that's a trumped-up charge because of his support for the um, overthrown regime. So lots of off-the-pitch off the, um, off the pitch issues to to look at. Um, and, you know, that's, that makes the tournament interesting, but again, I think uh, there's a lot of things to, to look forward to in this tournament. I think probably out of the three uh, tournaments that have expanded to 24 teams, the Euros, the Asian Cup, and the African Cup of Nations, I think this one was the most justified just because there's so much talent uh, on the continent and so many good teams. And I think that's why in the first couple of games we haven't seen any lopsided results.
0: Basil McDaddy. Carl, you were telling producer Ben earlier you are all in on Ghana. What, I am indeed. What makes you so confident?
1: It has to be now. It is very much the end of that glorious generation of, of Ghanaian footballers that many spectators remember from the two thousand ten World Cup and
2: What well, Gyan? Yeah. Oh
1: my god, please. I've got Asamoah Jeanne story for you. Cool. Uh, so, Jeanne obviously missed the penalty in 2010, uh, then missed a penalty in a crucial semi-final in the 2012 Afcon. So, uh, member of my family was part of a very disgruntled group of football fans that marched on his house <gasps> after missing two penalties in a row for Black Stars. So, it's sort of the end of that generation of footballers. Ghanaian football, notably, we're not very tall as a people. Uh, we make. Nice, short, stocky central midfielders, if you think of Sen and Andre Ayew. Um, so we're in a group with Cameroon, Benin and Guinea-Bissau, who will most likely, hopefully, come second in that group. And Jean will be phased out very soon afterwards, because if he doesn't, uh, there'll be extra members of that party too much on his house.
0: Good Lord. <laughs> um, right. Uh, we are just about out of time here. Uh, Jules, A delight as always. Thank you very much. Carl, very wonderful to have you here. Might be your last appearances in the Jazz FM studios. Not because you underperformed today and we're taking ruthless countermeasures, (laughs) um, but because we are moving to our own brand new studios in London's lovely Soho. So, be nice new surroundings for you when we next see you. Um, however, there's loads of other stuff for you to listen to. We've already mentioned the offside rule on Spotify. Get into that. Um, on Thursday, Tom Williams will be joining me and Michael Cox talking about Jose Mourinho's Porto side. You know the one and you know the beast that it spawned. Lovely. All right. Keep up to date with all things Totally by following us on Twitter at The Totally Show and by thunder as August approaches, there's some news to break. See you later.
3: You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddyneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really, and here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the Campaign Against Living Miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day.